Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 7 of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 I got hold of Mrs. Gross as soon after this as I could, and I can give no intelligible account of how I fought out the interval. Yet I still hear myself cry as I fairly threw myself into her arms. They know. It's too monstrous. They know, they know. And what on earth? I feel her incredulity as she held me. Why, all that we know, and heaven knows what else besides. Then, as she released me, I made it out to her, made it out, perhaps, only now, with full coherency, even to myself. Two hours ago in the garden, I could scarce articulate. Laura saw. Mrs. Gross took it as she might have taken a blow in the stomach. She has told you? She panted. Not a word, that's the horror. She kept it to herself. The child of eight, that child. Unutterable still for me was the stupefaction of it. Mrs. Gross, of course, could only gape the wider. Then how do you know? I was there. I saw it with my eyes. Saw that she was perfectly aware. Do you mean aware of him? No, of her. I was conscious as I spoke that I looked prodigious things, for I got the slow reflection of them in my companion's face. Another person this time, but a figure of quite an unmistakable horror and evil, a woman in black, pale and dreadful, with such an air also and such a face, on the other side of the lake. I was there with the child, quiet for an hour, and in the midst of it she came. Came how? From where? From where they come from? She just appeared and stood there, but not so near. And without coming nearer? Oh, for the effect and the feeling, she might have been as close as you. My friend, with an odd impulse, fell back a step. Was she someone you've never seen? Yes, but someone the child has, someone you have, then to show how I had thought it all out. 
my predecessor, the one who died. Miss Jessel? Miss Jessel. You don't believe me, I pressed. She turned right and left in her distress. How can you be sure? This drew from me in the state of my nerves a flash of impatience. Then ask Flora. She's sure. But I had no sooner spoken than I caught myself up. No, for God's sake, don't. She'll say she isn't. She'll lie. Mrs. Gross was not too bewildered instinctively to protest. Ah, oh, how can you? Because I'm clear. Flora doesn't want me to know. It's only then to spare you. No, no, there are depths, depths. The more I go over it, the more I see in it. And the more I see in it, the more I fear. I don't know what I don't see, what I don't fear. Mrs. Gross tried to keep up with me. You mean you're afraid of seeing her again? Oh, no, that's nothing now. Then I explained. It's of not seeing her. But my companion only looked wan. I don't understand you. Why, it's that the child may keep it up and that the child assuredly will without my knowing it. At the image of this possibility, Mrs. Gross for a moment collapsed, yet presently to pull herself together again, as if from the positive force of the sense of what, should we yield an inch, there would really be to give way to. Dear, dear, we must keep our heads. And after all, if she doesn't mind it, she even tried a grim joke. Perhaps she likes it. Likes such things? A scrap of an infant? Isn't it just a proof of her blessed innocence? My friend bravely inquired. She brought me for the instant almost round. Oh, we must clutch at that. We must cling to it. If it isn't a proof of what you say, it's a proof of God knows what, for the woman's a horror of horrors. Mrs. Gross, at this, fixed her eyes a minute on the ground, then at last raising them. Tell me how you know, she said. Then you admit it's what she was, I cried. Tell me how you know, my friend simply repeated. No, by seeing her, by the way she looked. At you, do you mean, so wickedly? Dear me, no, I could have borne that. She gave me never a glance. She only fixed the child. Mrs. Gross tried to see it. Fixed her? Ah, with such awful eyes. She stared at mine as if they might really have resembled them. Do you mean of dislike? God help us, no, of something much worse. Worse than dislike? This left her, indeed, at a loss. With a determination, indescribable, with a kind of fury of intention, I made her turn pale. Intention? To get hold of her? Mrs. Gross, her eyes just lingering on mine, gave a shudder and walked to the window. And while she stood looking out, I completed my statement. That's what Flora knows. After a little, she turned round. The person was in black, you say. In mourning, rather poor, almost shabby, but yes, with extraordinary beauty. I now recognised to what I had at last, stroke by stroke, brought the victim of my confidence, for she quite visibly weighed this. Oh, handsome, very, very, I insisted. Wonderfully handsome, 
but infamous. She slowly came back to me. Miss Jessel was infamous. She once more took my hand in both her own, holding it as tight as if to fortify me against the increase of alarm I might draw from this disclosure. They were both infamous, she finally said. So for a little, we faced it once more together, and I found absolutely a degree of help in seeing it now so straight. I appreciate, I said, the great decency of your not having hitherto spoken, but the time has certainly come to give me the whole thing. She appeared to assent to this, but still only in silence, seeing which I went on. I must have it now, of what did she die? Come, there was something between them. There was everything. In spite of the difference? Oh, of their rank, their condition, she brought it woefully out. She was a lady. I turned it over. I again saw. Yes, she was a lady. And he so dreadfully below, said Mrs. Gross. I felt that I doubtless needn't press too hard in such company, on the place of a servant in the scale, but there was nothing to prevent an acceptance of my companion's own measure of my predecessor's abasement. There was a way to deal with that, and I dealt the more readily for my full vision on the evidence of our employer's late, clever, good-looking own man, impudent, assured, spoiled, depraved. The fellow was a hound. Mrs. Gross considered, as if it were perhaps a little case for a sense of shades. I've never seen one like him. He did what he wished. With her? With them all. It was as if now, in my friend's own eyes, Miss Jessel had again appeared. I seemed at any rate for an instant to see their evocation of her as distinctly as I had seen her by the pond, and I brought out with decision. It must have been also what she wished. Mrs. Gross's face signified that it had been indeed, but she said at the same time, poor woman, she paid for it. Then you do know what she died of, I asked. No, I know nothing. I wanted not to know. I was glad enough I didn't. And I thanked heaven she was well out of this. Yet you had, then, your idea. Of her real reason for leaving? Oh, yes, as to that. She couldn't have stayed. Fancy it, here, for a governess. And afterward, I imagined, and I still imagine, and what I imagine is dreadful. Not so dreadful as what I do, I replied, on which I must have shown her, as I was indeed but too conscious, a front of miserable defeat. It brought out again all her compassion for me, and at the renewed touch of her kindness, my power to resist broke down. I burst, as I had the other time made her burst into tears. She took me to her motherly breast, and my lamentation overflowed. I don't do it, I sobbed in despair. I don't save or shield them. It's far worse than I dreamed. They're lost. End of chapter 7、Chapter、eight of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 What I had said to Mrs. Gross was true enough. There were, in the matter I had put before her, 
depths and possibilities that I lacked resolution to sound, so that when we met once more in the wonder of it, we were of a common mind about the duty of resistance to extravagant fancies. We were to keep our heads if we should keep nothing else, difficult indeed as that might be in the face of what, in our prodigious experience, was least to be questioned. Late that night, while the house slept, we had another talk in my room, when she went all the way with me as to its being beyond doubt that I had seen exactly what I had seen. To hold her perfectly in a pinch of that, I found I had only to ask her how, if I had made it up, I came to be able to give of each of the persons appearing to me a picture disclosing to the last detail their special marks, a portrait on the exhibition of which she had instantly recognised and named them. She wished, of course, small blame to her, to sink the whole subject, and I was quick to assure her that my own interest in it had now violently taken the form of a search for the way to escape from it. I encountered her on the ground of a probability that with recurrence, for recurrence we took for granted, I should get used to my danger, distinctly professing that my personal exposure had suddenly become the least of my discomforts. It was my new suspicion that was intolerable, and yet even to this complication the later hours of the day had brought a little ease. On leaving her, after my first outbreak, I had of course returned to my pupils, associating the right remedy for my dismay with that sense of their charm, which I had already found to be a thing I could positively cultivate, and which had never failed me yet. I had simply, in other words, plunged afresh into Flora's special society, and there become aware it was almost a luxury that she could put her little conscious hand straight into the spot that ached. She had looked at me in sweet speculation and then had accused me to my face of having cried. I had supposed I had brushed away the ugly signs, but I could literally, for the time at all events, rejoice under this fathomless charity that they had not entirely disappeared. To gaze into the depths of blue of the child's eyes and pronounce their loveliness a trick of premature cunning was to be guilty of a cynicism in preference to which I naturally preferred to abjure my judgment and, so far as might be, my agitation. I couldn't abjure for merely wanting to, but I could repeat to Mrs. Gross, as I did there over and over in the small hours, that with their voices in the air, their pressure on one's heart, and their fragrant faces against one's cheek, everything fell to the ground but their incapacity and their beauty. It was a pity that somehow, to settle this once for all, I had equally to re-enumerate the signs of subtlety that, in the afternoon, by the lake, had made a miracle of my show of self-possession. It was a pity to be obliged to reinvestigate the certitude of the moment itself and repeat how it had come to me as a revelation that the inconceivable communion I then surprised was a matter for either party of habit. 
it was a pity that i should have had to quaver out against the reasons for my not having in my delusion so much as questioned that the little girl saw our visitant even as i actually saw mrs gross herself and that she wanted by just so much as she did thus see to make me suppose she didn't and at the same time without showing anything arrive at a guess as to whether i myself did it was a pity that i needed once more to describe the portentous little activity by which she sought to divert my attention the perceptible increase of movement the greater intensity of play the singing the gabbling of nonsense and the invitation to romp yet if i had not indulged to prove there was nothing in it in this review i should have missed the two or three dim elements of comfort that still remained to me i should not for instance have been able to asseverate to my friend that i was certain which was so much to the good that i at least had not betrayed myself i should not have been prompted by stress of need by desperation of mind i scarce know what to call it to invoke such further aid to intelligence as might spring from pushing my colleague fairly to the wall she had told me bit by bit under pressure a great deal but a small shifty spot on the wrong side of it all still sometimes brushed my brow like the wing of a bat and i remember how on this occasion for the sleeping house and the concentration alike of our danger and our watch seemed to help i felt the importance of giving the last jerk to the curtain i don't believe anything so horrible i recollect saying no let us put it definitely my dear that i don't but if i did you know there's a thing i should require now just without sparing you the least bit more oh not a scrap come to get out of you what was it you had in mind when in our distress before miles came back over the letter from his school you said under my insistence that you didn't pretend for him that he had not literally ever been bad he has not literally ever in these weeks that i myself have lived with him and so closely watched him he has been an imperturbable little prodigy of delightful lovable goodness therefore you might perfectly have made the claim for him if you had not as it happened seen an exception to take what was your exception and to what passage in your personal observation of him did you refer it was a dreadfully austere inquiry but levity was not our note and at any rate before the grey dawn admonished us to separate i had got my answer what my friend had had in mind proved to be immensely to the purpose it was neither more nor less than the circumstance that for a period of several months quint and the boy had been perpetually together it was in fact the very appropriate truth that she had ventured to criticise the propriety to hint at the incongruity of so close an alliance and even to go so far on the subject as a frank overture to miss jessel miss jessel had with the most strange manner requested her to mind her business and the good woman had on this directly approached little miles 
What she had said to him since I pressed was that she liked to see young gentlemen not forget their station. I pressed again, of course, at this. You reminded him that Quint was only a base menial. As you might say, and it was his answer for one thing that was bad, and for another thing, I waited. He repeated your words to Quint. No, not that. It's just what he wouldn't. She could still impress upon me. I was sure, at any rate, she added, that he didn't, but he denied certain occasions. What occasions? When they had been about together, quite as if Quint were his tutor, and a very grand one, and Miss Jessel only for the little lady, when he had gone off with the fellow, I mean, and spent hours with him. He then prevaricated about it. He said he hadn't. Her assent was clear enough to cause me to add in a moment. I see. He lied. Oh, Mrs. Gross mumbled. This was a suggestion that it didn't matter, which indeed she backed up by a further remark. You see, after all, Miss Jessel didn't mind. She didn't forbid him. I considered. Did he put that to you as a justification? At this she dropped again. No, he never spoke of it. Never mentioned her in connection with Quint. She saw, visibly flushing, where I was coming out. Well, he didn't show anything. He denied, she repeated. He denied. Lord, how I pressed her now, so that you could see he knew what was between the two wretches. I don't know, I don't know, the poor woman groaned. You do know, you dear thing, I replied, only you haven't my dreadful boldness of mind, and you keep back, out of timidity and modesty and delicacy, even the impression that, in the past, when you had, without my aid, to flounder about in silence, most of all made you miserable, but I shall get it out of you yet. There was something in the boy that suggested to you, I continued, that he covered and concealed their relation. Oh, he couldn't prevent your learning the truth, I dare say, but heavens, I fell with vehemence a thinking what it shows that they must have succeeded in making of him. Ah, nothing that's not nice now, Mrs. Gross lugubriously pleaded. I don't wonder you look green, I persisted, when I mentioned to you the letter from his school. I doubt if I looked as queer as you, she retorted with homely force, and if he was so bad then as that comes to, how is he such an angel now? Yes, indeed, and if he was a fiend at school, how, how, how? Well, I said in my torment, you must put it to me again, but I shall not be able to tell you for some days. Only put it to me again, I cried in a way that made my friend stare. There are directions in which I must not for the present let myself go. Meanwhile, I returned to her first example, the one to which she had just previously referred, of the boy's happy capacity for an occasional slip. If Quint, on your remonstrance at the time you speak of, was a base menial, one of the things Miles said to you, I find myself guessing, was that you were another. Again, her admission was so adequate that I continued. And you forgave him that? Wouldn't you? Oh, yes. And we exchanged there in the stillness a sound of the oddest amusement. 
Then I went on. At all events, while he was with the man, Miss Flora was with the woman. It suited them all. It suited me too, I felt, only too well, by which I mean that it suited exactly the particularly deadly view I was in the very act of forbidding myself to entertain, but I so far succeeded in checking the expression of this view that I will throw, just here, no further light on it than may be offered by the mention of my final observation to Mrs. Gross. His having lied and been impudent are, I confess, less engaging specimens than I had hoped to have from you of the outbreak in him of the little natural man. Still, I mused, they must do, for they make me feel more than ever that I must watch. It made me blush the next minute to see in my friend's face how much more unreservedly she had forgiven him than her anecdote stuck me as presenting to my own tenderness an occasion for doing. This came out when at the schoolroom door she quitted me. Surely you don't accuse him of carrying on an intercourse that he conceals from me? I'll remember that until further evidence. I now accuse nobody. Then, before shutting her out to go by another passage to her own place, I must just wait, I wound up. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 I waited and waited, and the days as they elapsed took something from my consternation, a very few of them, in fact, passing in constant sight of my pupils without a fresh incident, sufficed to give to grievous fancies and even to odious memories a kind of brush of the sponge. I have spoken of the surrender to their extraordinary childish grace as a thing I could actively cultivate, and it may be imagined if I neglected now to address myself to this source for whatever it would yield. Stranger than I can express, certainly, was the effort to struggle against my new lights. It would doubtless have been, however, a greater tension still, had it not been so frequently successful. I used to wonder how my little charges could help guessing that I thought strange things about them, and the circumstances that these things only made them more interesting was not by itself a direct aid to keeping them in the dark. I trembled lest they should see that they were so immensely more interesting, putting things at the worst at all events as in meditation I so often did, any clouding of their innocence could only be blameless and foredoomed, as they were, a reason the more for taking risks. There were moments when, by an irresistible impulse, I found myself catching them up and pressing them to my heart. As soon as I had done so, I used to say to myself, What will they think of that? Doesn't it betray too much? It would have been easy to get into a sad, wild tangle about how much I might betray, but the real account I feel of the hours of peace that I could still enjoy was that the immediate charm of my companions was a beguilement still effective, even under the shadow of the possibility that it was studied. For if it occurred to me 
that I might occasionally excite suspicion by the little outbreaks of my sharper passion for them, so too I remember wondering if I mightn't see a queerness in the traceable increase of their demonstrations. They were at this period extravagantly and preternaturally fond of me, which, after all, I could reflect, was no more than a graceful response in children, perpetually bowed over and hugged. The homage of which they were so lavish succeeded in truth for my nerves, quite as well as if I had never appeared to myself, as I may say, literally to catch them at a purpose in it. They had never, I think, wanted to do so many things for their poor protectress. I mean, though they got their lessons better and better, which was naturally what would please her most, in a way of diverting, entertaining, surprising her, reading her passages, telling her stories, acting her charades, pouncing out at her in disguises, as animals and historical characters, and above all, astonishing her by the pieces they had secretly got by heart and could interminably recite. I should never get to the bottom, were I to let myself go, even now, of the prodigious private commentary, all under still more private correction, with which, in these days, I overscored their full hours. They had shown me from the first a facility for everything, a general faculty which, taking a fresh start, achieved remarkable flights. They got their little tasks as if they loved them and indulged from the mere exuberance of the gift in the most unimposed little miracles of memory. They not only popped out at me as tigers and as Romans, but as Shakespeareans, astronomers and navigators. This was so singularly the case that it had presumably much to do with the fact as to which, at the present day, I am at a loss for a different explanation. I allude to my unnatural composure on the subject of another school for miles. What I remember is that I was content not for the time to open the question, and that contentment must have sprung from the sense of his perpetually striking show of cleverness. He was too clever for a bad governess, for a parson's daughter to spoil, and the strangest, if not the brightest thread in the pensive embroidery I just spoke of was the impression I might have got, if I had dared to work it out, that he was under some influence operating in his small intellectual life as a tremendous incitement. If it was easy to reflect, however, that such a boy could postpone school, it was at least as marked that for such a boy to have been kicked out by a schoolmaster was a mystification without end. Let me add that in their company now, and I was careful almost never to be out of it, I could follow no scent very far. We lived in a cloud of music and love and success and private theatricals. The musical sense in each of the children was of the quickest, but the elder in especial had a marvellous knack of catching and repeating. The schoolroom piano broke into all gruesome fancies, and when that failed, there were confabulations in corners, with a sequel of one of them going out in the highest spirits in order to come in as something new. 
I had had brothers myself, and it was no revelation to me that little girls could be slavish idolaters of little boys. What surpassed everything was that there was a little boy in the world who could have, for the inferior age, sex and intelligence, so fine a consideration. They were extraordinarily at one, and to say that they never either quarrelled or complained is to make the note of praise coarse for their quality of sweetness. Sometimes, indeed, when I dropped into coarseness, I perhaps came across traces of little understandings between them by which one of them should keep me occupied while the other slipped away. There is a naif side, I suppose, in all diplomacy. But if my pupils practised upon me, it was surely with the minimum of grossness. It was all in the other quarter that, after a lull, the grossness broke out. I find that I really hang back, but I must take my plunge. In going on with the record of what was hideous at Bly, I not only challenged the most liberal faith for which I little care, but, and this is another matter, I renew what I myself suffered. I again push my way through it to the end. There came suddenly an hour after which, as I look back, the affair seems to me to have been all pure suffering. But I have at least reached the heart of it, and the straightest road out is doubtless to advance. One evening, with nothing to lead up or to prepare it, I felt the cold touch of the impression that had breathed on me the night of my arrival, and which, much lighter then, as I have mentioned, I should probably have made little of in memory, had my subsequent sojourn been less agitated. I had not gone to bed. I sat reading by a couple of candles. There was a room full of old books at Bly, last century fiction, some of it, which, to the extent of a distinctly deprecated renown, but never to so much as that of a stray specimen, had reached the sequestered home and appealed to the unavowed curiosity of my youth. I remember that the book I had in my hand was Fielding's Amelia, also that I was wholly awake. I recall further both a general conviction that it was horribly late and a particular objection to looking at my watch. I figure, finally, that the white curtain draping in the fashion of those days, the head of Flora's little bed, shrouded, as I have assured myself long before, the perfection of childish rest. I recollect, in short, that, though I was deeply interested in my author, I found myself at the turn of a page, and with his spell all scattered, looking straight up from him and hard at the door of my room. There was a moment during which I listened, reminded of the faint sense I had had the first night of there being something undefinably astir in the house, and noted the soft breath of the open casement just move the half-drawn blind. Then with all the marks of a deliberation that must have seemed magnificent had there been anyone to admire it, I laid down my book, rose to my feet, and taking a candle, went straight out of the room and from the passage, on which my light made little impression, noiselessly closed and locked the door. 
I can say now neither what determined nor what guided me, but I went straight along the lobby, holding my candle high, till I came within sight of the tall window that presided over the great turn of the staircase. At this point, I precipitately found myself aware of three things. They were practically simultaneous, yet they had flashes of succession. My candle under a bold flourish went out, and I perceived by the uncovered window that the yielding dusk of earliest morning rendered it unnecessary. Without it, the next instant, I saw that there was someone on the stair. I speak of sequences, but I required no lapse of seconds to stiffen myself for a third encounter with Quint. The apparition had reached the landing halfway up and was, therefore, on the spot nearest the window, where at sight of me it stopped short and fixed me exactly as it had fixed me from the tower and from the garden. He knew me as well as I knew him, and so, in the cold, faint twilight, with a glimmer in the high glass and another on the polish of the oak stair below, we faced each other in our common intensity. He was absolutely, on this occasion, a living, detestable, dangerous presence, but that was not the wonder of wonders. I reserve this distinction for quite another circumstance, the circumstance that dread had unmistakably quitted me, and that there was nothing in me there that didn't meet and measure him. I had plenty of anguish after that extraordinary moment, but I had, thank God, no terror, and he knew I had not. I found myself at the end of an instant magnificently aware of this. I felt in a fierce rigour of confidence that if I stood my ground a minute I should cease, for the time at least, to have him to reckon with, and during the minute, accordingly, the thing was as human and hideous as a real interview." hideous just because it was human, as human as to have met alone in the small hours in a sleeping house some enemy, some adventurer, some criminal. It was the dead silence of our long gaze at such close quarters that gave the whole horror, huge as it was, its only note of the unnatural. If I had met a murderer in such a place and at such an hour, we still at least would have spoken. Something would have passed. In life, between us, if nothing had passed, one of us would have moved. The moment was so prolonged that it would have taken but little more to make me doubt if even I were in life. I can't express what followed it, save by saying that the silence itself which was indeed in a manner an attestation of my strength, became the element into which I saw the figure disappear, in which I definitely saw it turn, as I might have seen the low wretch to which it had once belonged, turn on receipt of an order, and pass with my eyes on the villainous back that no hunch could have more disfigured, straight down the staircase and into the darkness in which the next bend was lost. End of chapter 9
Chapter Ten of *The Turn of the Screw* by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. I remained a while at the top of the stair, but with the effect presently of understanding that when my visitor had gone, he had gone. Then I returned to my room. The foremost thing I saw there by the light of the candle I had left burning was that Flora's little bed was empty, and on this I caught my breath with all the terror that five minutes before I had been able to resist. I dashed at the place in which I had left her lying, and over which, for the small silk counterpane and the sheets were disarranged, the white curtains had been deceivingly pulled forward. Then my step, to my unutterable relief, produced an answering sound. I perceived an agitation of the window blind, and the child, ducking down, emerged rosily from the other side of it. She stood there, in so much of her candour and so little of her nightgown, with her pink bare feet and the golden glow of her curls. She looked intensely grave, and I had never had such a sense of losing an advantage acquired the thrill of which had just been so prodigious as on my consciousness that she addressed me with a reproach. You naughty, where have you been? Instead of challenging her own irregularity, I found myself arraigned and explaining. She herself explained, for that matter, with the loveliest, eagerest simplicity. She had known suddenly, as she lay there, that I was out of the room, and had jumped up to see what had become of me. I had dropped with the joy of her reappearance back into my chair, feeling then, and then only, a little faint, and she had pattered straight over to me, thrown herself upon my knee, given herself to be held with the flame of the candle, full in the wonderful little face that was still flushed with sleep. I remember closing my eyes an instant, yieldingly, consciously, as before, the excess of something beautiful that shone out of the blue of her own. You were looking for me out of the window, I said. You thought I might be walking in the grounds? Well, you know I thought someone was. She never blanched as she smiled out that at me. Oh, how I looked at her now. And did you see anyone? Ah, no, she returned almost with the full privilege of childish inconsequence, resentfully, though, with a long sweetness in her little drawl of the negative. At that moment, in the state of my nerves, I absolutely believe she lied, and if I once more closed my eyes, it was before the dazzle of the three or four possible ways in which I might take this up. One of these, for a moment, tempted me with such singular intensity that to withstand it I must have gripped my little girl with a spasm that wonderfully she submitted to without a cry or a sign of fright. Why not break out at her on the spot and have it all over? Give it to her straight in her lovely little lighted face. You see... You see, you know that you do, and that you already quite suspect I believe it. Therefore, why not frankly confess it to me, so that we may at least live with it together, and learn, perhaps, in the strangeness of our fate, where we are and what it means? 
This solicitation dropped, alas, as it came. If I could immediately have succumbed to it, I might have spared myself. Well, you'll see what. Instead of succumbing, I sprang again to my feet, looked at her bed, and took a helpless middle way. Why did you pull the curtain over the place to make me think you were still there? Laura luminously considered, after which, with her little divine smile, because I don't like to frighten you. But if I had, by your idea, gone out, she absolutely declined to be puzzled. She turned her eyes to the flame of the candle, as if the question were as irrelevant, or at any rate as impersonal, as Mrs. Marset or nine times nine. Oh, but you know, she quite adequately answered, that you might come back, you dear, and that you have. And after a little, when she had got into bed, I had for a long time, by almost sitting on her to hold her hand, to prove that I recognised the pertinence of my return. You may imagine the general complexion from that moment of my nights. I repeatedly sat up till I didn't know when. I selected moments when my roommate unmistakably slept, and stealing out took noiseless turns in the passage, and even pushed as far as to where I had last met Quint. But I never met him there again, and I may as well say at once that I, on no other occasion, saw him in the house. I just missed, on the staircase, on the other hand, a different adventure. Looking down it from the top, I once recognised the presence of a woman seated on one of the lower steps, with her back presented to me, her body half-bowed, and her head in an attitude of woe in her hands. I had been there but an instant, however, when she vanished without looking round at me. I knew, nonetheless, exactly what dreadful face she had to show, and I wondered whether, if instead of being above I had been below, I should have had for going up the same nerve I had lately shown Quint. Well, there continued to be plenty of chance for nerve, on the eleventh night after my latest encounter with that gentleman, they were all numbered now, I had an alarm, but perilously skirted it, and that indeed, from the particular quality of its unexpectedness, proved quite my sharpest shock. It was precisely the first night during this series that, weary with watching, I had felt that I might again, without laxity, lay myself down at my old hour. I slept immediately, and, as I afterward knew, till about one o'clock. But when I woke it was to sit straight up as completely roused as if a hand had shook me. I had left a light burning, but it was now out, and I felt an instant certainty that Flora had extinguished it. This brought me to my feet and straight in the darkness to her bed, which I found she had left. A glance at the window enlightened me further, and the striking of a match completed the picture. The child had again got up, this time blowing out the taper, and had again, for some purpose of observation or response, squeezed in behind the blind, and was peering out into the night. That she now saw, as she had not, I had satisfied myself the previous time, was proved to me by the fact that she was disturbed neither 
by my re-illumination, nor by the haste I made to get into slippers and into a wrap. Hidden, protected, absorbed, she evidently rested on the sill. The casement opened forward and gave herself up. There was a great still moon to help her, and this fact had counted in my quick decision. She was face to face with the apparition we had met at the lake, and could now communicate with it as she had not then been able to do. What I, on my side, had to care for was, without disturbing her, to reach from the corridor, some other window in the same quarter. I got to the door without her hearing me. I got out of it, closed it, and listened from the other side for some sound from her. While I stood in the passage, I had my eyes on her brother's door, which was but ten steps off, and which, indescribably, produced in me a renewal of the strange impulse that I lately spoke of as my temptation. What if I should go straight in and march to his window? What if, by risking to his boyish bewilderment a revelation of my motive, I should throw across the rest of the mystery, the long halter of my boldness? This thought held me sufficiently to make me cross to his threshold and pause again. I preternaturally listened. I figured to myself what might portentously be. I wondered if his bed were also empty and he too was secretly at watch. It was a deep, soundless minute at the end of which my impulse failed. He was quiet. He might be innocent. The risk was hideous. I turned away. There was a figure in the grounds, a figure prowling for a sight, the visitor with whom Flora was engaged, but it was not the visitor most concerned with my boy. I hesitated afresh, but on other grounds and only for a few seconds. Then I had made my choice. There were empty rooms at Bly, and it was only a question of choosing the right one. The right one suddenly presented itself to me as the lower one, though high above the gardens, in the solid corner of the house that I have spoken of as the old tower. This was a large square chamber, arranged with some state as a bedroom, the extravagant size of which made it so inconvenient that it had not for years, though kept by Mrs. Gross in exemplary order, been occupied. I had often admired it, and I knew my way about in it. I had only, after just faltering at the first chill gloom of its disuse, to pass across it and unbolt as quietly as I could one of the shutters. Achieving this transit, I uncovered the glass without a sound, and applying my face to the pane was able the darkness without being much less than within, to see that I commanded the right direction. Then I saw something more. The moon made the night extraordinarily penetrable and showed me on the lawn a person, diminished by distance, who stood there, motionless and as if fascinated, looking up to where I had appeared. Looking, that is, not so much straight at me, as at something that was apparently above me. There was clearly another person above me. There was a person on the tower, but the presence on the lawn was not in the least what I had conceived and had confidently hurried to meet. 
the presence on the lawn, I felt sick as I made it out, was poor little Miles himself. End of chapter 10「Eleven of the Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven It was not till late next day that I spoke to Mrs. Gross, the rigour with which I kept my pupils in sight, making it often difficult to meet her privately, and the more as we each felt the importance of not provoking, on the part of the servants, quite as much as on that of the children, any suspicion of a secret flurry or that of a discussion of mysteries. I drew a great security in this, particular from her mere smooth aspect. There was nothing in her fresh face to pass on to others my horrible confidences. She believed me, I was sure, absolutely. If she hadn't, I don't know what would have become of me, for I couldn't have borne the business alone but she was a magnificent monument to the blessing of a want of imagination, and if she could see in our little charges nothing but their beauty and amiability, their happiness and cleverness, she had no direct communication with the sources of my trouble. If they had been at all visibly blighted or battered, she would doubtless have grown, on tracing it back, haggard enough to match them. As matters stood, however, I could feel her when she surveyed them with her large white arms folded and the habit of serenity in all her look. Thank the Lord's mercy that if they were ruined, the pieces would still serve. Flights of fancy gave place in her mind to a steady fireside glow, and I had already begun to perceive how, with the development of the conviction that, as time went on, without a public accident, our young things could, after all, look out for themselves. She addressed her greatest solicitude to the sad case presented by their instructress. That, for myself, was a sound simplification. I could engage that to the world. My face should tell no tales, but it would have been, in the conditions, an immense added strain to find myself anxious about hers. At the hour I now speak of, she had joined me, under pressure, on the terrace, where, with the lapse of the season, the afternoon sun was now agreeable, and we sat there together, while before us, at a distance, but within call if we wished, the children strolled to and fro in one of their most manageable moods. They moved slowly, in unison, below us, over the lawn, the boy, as they went, reading aloud from a storybook and passing his arm round his sister to keep her quite in touch. Mrs. Gross watched them with positive placidity, then I caught the suppressed intellectual creak with which she conscientiously turned to take from me a view of the back of the tapestry. I had made her a receptacle of lurid things, but there was an odd recognition of my superiority my accomplishments and my function in her patience under my pain. She offered her mind to my disclosures as, had I wished to mix a witch's broth and proposed it with assurance, she would have held out a large clean saucepan. 
This had become thoroughly her attitude by the time that, in my recital of the events of the night, I reached the point of what Miles had said to me when, after seeing him at such a monstrous hour, almost on the very spot where he happened now to be, I had gone down to bring him in, choosing then at the window, with a concentrated need of not alarming the house, rather that method than a signal more resonant. I had left her, meanwhile, in little doubt of my small hope of representing with success, even to her actual sympathy, my sense of the real splendour of the little inspiration with which, after I had got him into the house, the boy met my final articulate challenge. As soon as I appeared in the moonlight on the terrace, he had come to me as straight as possible, on which I had taken his hand without a word and led him through the dark spaces up the staircase where Quint had so hungrily hovered for him, along the lobby where I had listened and trembled, and so to his forsaken room. Not a sound on the way had passed between us, and I had wondered, oh how I had wondered, if he were groping about in his little mind for something plausible and not too grotesque. It would tax his invention, certainly, and I felt this time, over his real embarrassment, a curious thrill of triumph. It was a sharp trap for the inscrutable. He couldn't play any longer at innocence, so how the deuce would he get out of it? There beat in me, indeed, with the passionate throb of this question, an equal dumb appeal as to how the deuce I should I was confronted at last, as never yet with all the risk attached, even now to sounding my own horrid note. I remember, in fact, that as we pushed into his little chamber, where the bed had not been slept in at all, and the window, uncovered to the moonlight, made the place so clear that there was no need of striking a match, I remember how I suddenly dropped, sank upon the edge of the bed from the force of the idea, that he must know how he really, as they say, had me. He could do what he liked with all his cleverness to help him, so long as I should continue to defer to the old tradition of the criminality of those caretakers of the young who minister to superstitions and fear. He had me indeed, and in a cleft stick, for who would ever absolve me? Who would consent that I should go unhung if, by the faintest tremor of an overture, I were the first to introduce into our perfect intercourse an element so dire? No, no, it was useless to attempt to convey to Mrs. Gross, just as it is scarcely less so to attempt to suggest here, how, in our short, stiff brush in the dark, he fairly shook me with admiration. I was, of course, thoroughly kind and merciful. Never, never yet had I placed on his little shoulders hands of such tenderness as those with which, while I rested against the bed, I held him there well under fire. I had no alternative but, in form at least, to put it to him. You must tell me now and all the truth. What did you go out for? What were you doing there? 
I can still see his wonderful smile, the whites of his beautiful eyes, and the uncovering of his little teeth shine to me in the dusk. If I tell you why, will you understand? My heart at this leaped into my mouth. Would he tell me why? I found no sound on my lips to press it, and I was aware of replying only with a vague, repeated, grimacing nod. He was gentleness itself, and while I wagged my head at him, he stood there, more than ever, a little fairy prince. It was his brightness, indeed, that gave me a respite. Would it be so great if he were really going to tell me? Well, he said at last, just exactly in order that you should do this. Do what? Think me, for a change bad. I shall never forget the sweetness and gaiety with which he brought out the word, nor how, on top of it, he bent forward and kissed me. It was practically the end of everything. I met his kiss, and I had to make, while I folded him for a minute in my arms, the most stupendous effort not to cry. He had given exactly the account of himself that permitted least of my going behind it, and it was only with the effect of confirming my acceptance of it that, as I presently glanced about the room, I could say, Then you didn't undress at all? He fairly glittered in the gloom. Not at all. I sat up and read. And when did you go down? At midnight, when I'm bad. I am bad. I see, I see, it's charming, but how could you be sure I would know it? Oh, I arranged that with Flora. His answers rang out with a readiness. She was to get up and look out, which is what she did do. It was I who fell into the trap. So she disturbed you, and to see what she was looking at, you also looked, you saw. While you, I concurred, caught your death in the night air. He literally bloomed so from this exploit that he could afford radiantly to assent. How otherwise should I have been bad enough? He asked. Then, after another embrace, the incident and our interview closed on my recognition of all the reserves of goodness that, for his joke, he had been able to draw upon. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 The particular impression I had received proved in the morning light. I repeat, not quite successfully presentable to Mrs. Gross, though I reinforced it with the mention of still another remark that he had made before we separated. It all lies in half a dozen words, I said to her, words that really settled the matter. Think you know what I might do? He threw that off to show me how good he is. He knows down to the ground what he might do. That's what he gave them a taste of at school. Lord, you do change, cried my friend. I don't change, I simply make it out. The four depend upon it perpetually meet. 
If on either of these last nights you had been with either child, you would clearly have understood. The more I've watched and waited, the more I've felt that if there were nothing else to make it sure, it would be made so by the systematic silence of each. Never, by a slip of the tongue, have they so much as alluded to either of their old friends, any more than Miles has alluded to his expulsion. Oh yes, we may sit here and look at them, and they may show off to us there to their fill, but even while they pretend to be lost in their fairy tale, they're steeped in their vision of the dead restored. He's not reading to her, I declared. They're talking of them. They're talking horrors. I go on, I know, as if I were crazy, and it's a wonder I'm not. What I've seen would have made you so. But it has only made me more lucid, made me get hold of still other things. My lucidity must have seemed awful that the charming creatures who were victims of it, passing and repassing in their interlocked sweetness, gave my colleague something to hold on by, and I felt how tight she held, as without stirring in the breath of my passion, she covered them still with her eyes. Of what other things have you got hold? Why of the very things that have delighted, fascinated, and yet at bottom, as I now so strangely see, mystified and troubled me? They're more than earthly beauty, they're absolutely unnatural goodness. It's a game, I went on, it's a policy and a fraud. On the part of little darlings, as yet, mere lovely babies. Yes, mad as that seems, the very act of bringing it out really helped me to trace it, follow it all up and piece it all together. They haven't been good, they've only been absent. It has been easy to live with them because they're simply leading a life of their own. They're not mine, they're not ours, they're his and they're hers. Quince and that woman's. Quince and that woman's. They want to get them. Oh, how at this, poor Mrs. Gross appeared to study them. But for what? For the love of all the evil that, in those dreadful days, the pair put into them, and to ply them with that evil still, to keep up the work of demons, is what brings the others back. Laws! said my friend under her breath. The exclamation was homely, but it revealed a real acceptance of my further proof of what, in the bad time, for there had been a worse even than this, must have occurred. There could have been no such justification for me as the plain assent of her experience to whatever depth of depravity I found credible in our brace of scoundrels. It was in obvious submission of memory that she brought out after a moment. They were rascals, but what can they now do? She pursued. Do? I echoed so loud that Miles and Flora, as they passed at their distance, paused an instant in their walk and looked at us. Don't they do enough? I demanded in a lower tone, while the children, having smiled and nodded and kissed hands to us, resumed their exhibition. We were held by it a minute, then I answered. 
they can destroy them. At this my companion did turn, but the inquiry she launched was a silent one, the effect of which was to make me more explicit. They don't know as yet quite how, but they're trying hard. They're seen only across, as it were, and beyond, in strange places and on high places, the tops of towers, the roof of houses, the outside of windows, the further edge of pools, but there's a deep design on either side to shorten the distance and overcome the obstacle. And the success of the tempters is only a question of time. They've only to keep to their suggestions of danger. For the children to come and perish in the attempt, Mrs. Gross slowly got up and I scrupulously added, unless, of course, we can prevent. Standing there before me while I kept my seat, she visibly turned things over. Their uncle must do the preventing. He must take them away. And who's to make him? She had been scanning the distance, but she now dropped on me a foolish face. You, miss? By writing to him that his house is poisoned and his little nephew and niece mad. But if they are, miss, and if I am myself, you mean, that's charming news to be sent him by a governess whose prime undertaking was to give him no worry. Mrs. Gross considered, following the children again. Yes, he do hate worry. That was the great reason why those fiends took him in so long. No doubt, though his indifference must have been awful. As I'm not a fiend at any rate, I shouldn't take him in. My companion, after an instant and for all answer, sat down again and grasped my arm. Make him at any rate come to you. I stared. To me, I had a sudden fear of what she might do. Him? He ought to be here. He ought to help. I quickly rose, and I think I must have shown her a queerer face than ever yet. You see me asking him for a visit? No, with her eyes on my face, she evidently couldn't. Instead of it, even, as a woman reads another, she could see what I myself saw, his derision, his amusement, his contempt for the breakdown of my resignation at being left alone, and for the fine machinery I had set in motion to attract his attention to my slighted charms. She didn't know, no one knew, how proud I had been to serve him and to stick to our terms. Yet she nonetheless took the measure, I think, of the warning I now gave her. If you should so lose your head as to appeal to him for me, she was really frightened. Yes, miss, I would leave on the spot both him and you. End of chapter 12《Chapter Thirteen of the Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. It was all very well to join them, but speaking to them proved quite as much as ever an effort beyond my strength, offered in close quarters, difficulties as insurmountable 
as before. This situation continued a month, and with new aggravations and particular notes, the note, above all, sharper and sharper, of the small ironic consciousness on the part of my pupils. It was not, I am as sure today as I was then, my mere infernal imagination. It was absolutely traceable that they were aware of my predicament, and that this strange relation made, in a manner, for a long time, the air in which we moved. I don't mean that they had their tongues in their cheeks or did anything vulgar, for that was not one of their dangers. I do mean, on the other hand, that the element of the unnamed and untouched became, between us, greater than any other, and that so much avoidance could not have been so successfully effected without a great deal of tacit arrangement. It was as if, at moments, we were perpetually coming into sight of subjects before which we must stop short, turning suddenly out of alleys that we perceived to be blind, closing with a little bang that made us look at each other, for, like all bangs, it was something louder than we had intended, the doors we had indiscreetly opened. All roads lead to Rome, and there were times when it might have struck us that almost every branch of study or subject of conversation skirted forbidden ground. Forbidden ground was the question of the return of the dead in general, and of whatever in especial might survive in memory of the friends little children had lost. There were days when I could have sworn that one of them had, with a small invisible nudge, said to the other, She thinks she'll do it this time, but she won't. To do it would have been to indulge, for instance, and for once, in a way, in some direct reference to the lady who had prepared them for my discipline. They had a delightful endless appetite for passages in my own history, to which I had again and again treated them. They were in possession of everything that had ever happened to me, had had, with every circumstance, a story of my smallest adventures, and of those of my brothers and sisters, and of the cat and the dog at home, as well as many particulars of the eccentric nature of my father, of the furniture and arrangement of our house and of the conversation of the old women of our village. There were things enough, taking one with another, to chatter about if one went very fast and knew by instinct when to go round. They pulled with an art of their own the strings of my invention and my memory, and nothing else perhaps, when I thought of such occasions afterward, gave me so the suspicion of being watched from under cover. It was in any case over my life, my past and my friends alone that we could take anything like our ease, a state of affairs that led them sometimes without the least pertinence to break out into sociable reminders. I was invited with no visible connection to repeat afresh Goody Gosling's celebrated sayings or to confirm the details already supplied as to the cleverness of the vicarage pony. It was partly at such junctures as these, and partly at quite different ones, that with the turn my matters had now taken, my predicament, as I have called it, grew most sensible. 
the fact that the days passed for me without another encounter ought, it would have appeared, to have done something towards soothing my nerves. Since the light brush that second night on the upper landing of the presence of a woman at the foot of the stair, I had seen nothing, whether in or out of the house, that one had better not have seen. There was many a corner round which I expected to come upon Quint, and many a situation that, in a merely sinister way, would have favoured the appearance of Miss Jessel. The summer had turned, the summer had gone, the autumn had dropped upon Bly, and had blown out half our lights. The place with its grey sky and withered garlands, its bared spaces and scattered dead leaves, was like a theatre after the performance, all strewn with crumpled playbills. There were exactly states of the air, conditions of sound and of stillness, unspeakable impressions of the kind of ministering moment that brought back to me long enough to catch it the feeling of the medium in which, that June evening out of doors, I had had my first sight of Quint, and in which, too, at those other instants, I had, after seeing him through the window, looked for him in vain in the circle of shrubbery. I recognised the signs, the portents, I recognised the moment, the spot, but they remained unaccompanied and empty, and I continued unmolested. If unmolested one could call a young woman, whose sensibility had, in the most extraordinary fashion, not declined, but deepened, I had said in my talk with Mrs. Gross on that horrid scene of Flora's by the lake, and had perplexed her by so saying, that it would from that moment distress me much more to lose my power than to keep it. I had then expressed what was vividly in my mind, the truth that, whether the children really saw or not, since, that is, it was not yet definitely proved, I greatly preferred, as a safeguard, the fullness of my own exposure. I was ready to know the very worst that was to be known. What I had then had an ugly glimpse of was that my eyes might be sealed just while theirs were most opened. Well, my eyes were sealed, it appeared, at present, a consummation for which it seemed blasphemous not to thank God. There was, alas, a difficulty about that. I would have thanked him with all my soul had I not had, in a proportionate measure, this conviction of the secret of my pupils. How can I retrace today the strange steps of my obsession? There were times of our being together when I would have been ready to swear that literally, in my presence, but with my direct sense of it closed, they had visitors who were known and were welcome. Then it was that, had I not been deterred by the very chance that such an injury might prove greater than the injury to be averted, my exultation would have broken out. They're here, they're here, you little wretches, I would have cried, and you can't deny it now. The little wretches denied it with all the added volume of their sociability and their tenderness in just the crystal depths of which, like the flash of a fish in a stream, the mockery of their advantage peeped up. The shock, in truth, had sunk into me still deeper than I knew on the night when, looking out to see either Quint or Miss Jessel, 
under the stars. I had beheld the boy over whose rest I watched and who had immediately brought in with him, had straightway there turned it on me, the lovely upward look with which, from the battlements above me, the hideous apparition of Quint had played. If it was a question of a scare, my discovery on this occasion had scared me more than any other, and it was in the condition of nerves produced by it that I made my actual inductions. They harassed me so that sometimes, at odd moments, I shut myself up audibly to rehearse. It was at once a fantastic relief and a renewed despair, the manner in which I might come to the point. I approached it from one side and the other while, in my room, I flung myself about, but I always broke down in the monstrous utterance of names. As they died away on my lips, I said to myself, that I should indeed help them to represent something infamous if, by pronouncing them, I should violate as rare a little case of instinctive delicacy as any schoolroom probably had ever known. When I said to myself, they have the manners to be silent, and you, trusted as you are, the baseness to speak, I felt myself crimson, and I covered my face with my hands. After these secret scenes, I chattered more than ever, going on volubly enough till one of our prodigious palpable hushes occurred. I can call them nothing else, the strange dizzy lift or swim, I try for terms, into a stillness, a pause of all life that had nothing to do with the more or less noise that at the moment we might be engaged in making, and that I could hear through my deepened exhilaration or quickened recitation or louder strum of the piano. Then it was that the others, the outsiders, were there. Though they were not angels, they passed, as the French say, causing me, while they stayed, to tremble with the fear of their addressing to their younger victims some yet more infernal message or more vivid image than they had thought good enough for myself. What it was most impossible to get rid of was the cruel idea that, whatever I had seen, Miles and Flora saw more, things terrible and unguessable, and that sprang from dreadful passages of intercourse in the past. Such things naturally left on the surface, for the time, a chill which we vociferously denied that we felt, and we had, all three, with repetition, got into such splendid training that we went each time, almost automatically, to mark the close of the incident through the very same movements. It was striking of the children, at all events, to kiss me, inveterately, with a kind of wild irrelevance, and never to fail, one or the other, of the precious question that had helped us through many a peril. When do you think he will come? Don't you think we ought to write? There was nothing like that inquiry. We found by experience for carrying off an awkwardness. He, of course, was their uncle in Harley Street, and we lived in much profusion of theory that he might at any moment arrive to mingle in our circle. 
It was impossible to have given less encouragement than he had done to such a doctrine, but if we had not had the doctrine to fall back upon, we should have deprived each other of some of our finest exhibitions. He never wrote to them. That may have been selfish, but it was a part of the flattery of his trust of me, for the way in which a man pays his highest tribute to a woman is apt to be but by the more festal celebration of one of the sacred laws of his comfort, and I held that I carried out the spirit of the pledge, given not to appeal to him, when I let my charges understand that their own letters were but charming literary exercises. They were too beautiful to be posted. I kept them myself. I have them all to this hour. This was a rule, indeed, which only added to the satiric effect of my being plied with the supposition that he might, at any moment, be among us. It was exactly as if my charges knew how almost more awkward than anything else that might be for me. There appears to me, moreover, as I look back, no note in all this more extraordinary than the mere fact that, in spite of my tension and of their triumph, I never lost patience with them. Adorable they must in truth have been, I now reflect, that I didn't, in these days, hate them. Would exasperation, however, if relief had longer been postponed, finally have betrayed me? It little matters for relief arrived. I call it relief, though it was only the relief that a snap brings to a strain or the burst of a thunderstorm to a day of suffocation. It was at least change, and it came with a rush. End of chapter 13「Fourteen of the Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen Walking to church a certain Sunday morning, I had little Miles at my side and his sister in advance of us, and at Mrs. Gross's well in sight. It was a crisp, clear day, the first of its order for some time. The night had brought a touch of frost, and the autumn air, bright and sharp, made the church bells almost gay. It was an odd accident of thought that I should have happened at such a moment to be particularly and very gratefully struck with the obedience of my little charges. Why did they never resent my inexorable, my perpetual society? Something or other had brought nearer home to me that I had all but pinned the boy to my shawl, and that, in the way our companions were marshalled before me, I might have appeared to provide against some danger of rebellion. I was like a jailer with an eye to possible surprises and escapes. But all this belonged, I mean their magnificent little surrender, just to the special array of the facts that were most abysmal. Turned out for Sunday by his uncle's tailor, who had had a free hand and a notion of pretty waistcoats, and of his grand little heir, Miles's whole title to independence, the rights of his sex and situation, were so stamped upon him that if he had suddenly struck for freedom, I should have had nothing to say. I was, by the strangest of chances, wondering how I should meet him when the revolution unmistakably occurred. I call it a revolution because I now see how, with the word he spoke, 
the curtain rose on the last act of my dreadful drama, and the catastrophe was precipitated. Look here, my dear, you know, he charmingly said. When in the world, please, am I going back to school? Transcribed here, the speech sounds harmless enough, particularly as uttered in the sweet high casual pipe with which at all interlocutors, but above all at his eternal governess, he threw off intonations as if he were tossing roses. There was something in them that always made one catch, and I caught, at any rate, now so effectually that I stopped as short as if one of the trees of the park had fallen across the road. There was something new on the spot between us, and he was perfectly aware that I recognised it, though, to enable me to do so, he had no need to look a whit less candid and charming than usual. I could feel in him how he already, from my at first finding nothing to reply, perceived the advantage he had gained. I was so slow to find anything that he had plenty of time, after a minute, to continue with his suggestive but inconclusive smile. You know, my dear, that for a fellow to be with a lady always, his my dear was constantly on his lips for me, and nothing could have expressed more the exact shade of the sentiment with which I desired to inspire my pupils than its fond familiarity. It was so respectfully easy. But, oh, how I felt that at present I must pick my own phrases. I remember that, to gain time, I tried to laugh and I seemed to see in the beautiful face with which he watched me how ugly and queer I looked. And always with the same lady, I returned. He neither blanched nor winked. The whole thing was virtually out between us. Ah, of course, she's a jolly, perfect lady, but after all, I'm a fellow, don't you see? That's, well, getting on. I lingered there with him an instant ever so kindly. Yes, you're getting on. Oh, but I felt helpless. I have kept to this day the heartbreaking little idea of how he seemed to know that and to play with it, and you can't say I've not been awfully good, can you? I laid my hand on his shoulder, for though I felt how much better it would have been to walk on, I was not yet quite able. No, I can't say that, Miles. Except just that one night, you know. That one night? I couldn't look as straight as he. Why, when I went down, went out of the house? Oh, yes, but I forgot what you did it for. You forget? He spoke with the sweet extravagance of childish reproach. Why, it was to show you I could. Oh, yes, you could. And I can again. I felt that I might, perhaps after all, succeed in keeping my wits about me. Certainly, but you won't. No, not that again. It was nothing. It was nothing, I said, but we must go on. He resumed our walk with me, passing his hand into my arm. Then when am I going back? I wore, in turning it over, my most responsible air. Were you very happy at school? He just considered. Oh, I'm happy enough anywhere. Well then, I quavered, if you're just as happy here, 
Ah, but that isn't everything. Of course, you know a lot. But you hint that you know almost as much, I risked as he paused. Not half I want to, Miles honestly professed, but it isn't so much that. What is it then? Well, I want to see more life. I see, I see. We had arrived within sight of the church and of various persons, including several of the household of Bly, on their way to it and clustered about the door to see us go in. I quickened our step. I wanted to get there before the question between us opened up much further. I reflected hungrily that, for more than an hour, he would have to be silent, and I thought with envy of the comparative dusk of the pew and of the almost spiritual help of the hassock on which I might bend my knees. I seemed literally to be running a race with some confusion to which he was about to reduce me, but I felt that he had got in first when, before we had even entered the churchyard, he threw out. I want my own sort. It literally made me bound forward. There are not many of your own sort, Miles, I laughed, unless perhaps dear little Flora. You really compare me to a baby girl. This found me singularly weak. Don't you then love our sweet Flora? If I didn't, and you too, if I didn't, he repeated as if retreating for a jump, yet leaving his thoughts so unfinished that, after we had come into the gate, another stop, which he imposed on me by the pressure of his arm, had become inevitable. Mrs. Gross and Flora had passed into the church, the other worshippers had followed, and we were for the minute alone among the old thick graves. We had paused on the path from the gate by a low, oblong, table-like tomb. Yes, if you didn't, he looked while I waited at the graves. Well, you know what? Me to rest. Does my uncle think what you think? I markedly rested. How do you know what I think? Ah, well, of course I don't, for it strikes me you never tell me. But I mean, does he know? Know what, Miles? Why, the way I'm going on? I perceived quickly enough that I could make to this inquiry no answer that would not involve something of a sacrifice of my employer, yet it appeared to me that we were all, at Bly, sufficiently sacrificed to make that venial. I don't think your uncle much cares. Miles, on this, stood looking at me. Then don't you think he can be made to? In what way? Why, by his coming down? But who'll get him to come down? I will, the boy said with extraordinary brightness and emphasis. He gave me another look, charged with that expression, and then marched off alone into church. End of chapter 14、Chapter、Fifteen of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen. The business was practically settled from the moment I never followed him. It was a pitiful surrender to agitation, but my being aware of this had somehow no power to restore me. 
I only sat there on my tomb and read into what my little friend had said to me, the fullness of its meaning. By the time I had grasped the whole of which I had also embraced, for absence, the pretext that I was ashamed to offer my pupils and the rest of the congregation such an example of delay. What I said to myself above all was that Miles had got something out of me and that the proof of it, for him, would be just this awkward collapse. He had got out of me that there was something I was much afraid of and that he should probably be able to make use of my fear to gain, for his own purpose, more freedom. My fear was of having to deal with the intolerable question of the grounds of his dismissal from school, for that was really but the question of the horrors gathered behind. That his uncle should arrive to treat with me of these things was a solution that, strictly speaking, I ought now to have desired to bring on. But I could so little face the ugliness and the pain of it that I simply procrastinated and lived from hand to mouth. The boy, to my deep discomposure, was immensely in the right, was in a position to say to me, Either you clear up with my guardian the mystery of this interruption of my studies, or you cease to expect me to lead with you a life that's so unnatural for a boy. What was so unnatural for the particular boy I was concerned with was this sudden revelation of a consciousness and a plan. That was what really overcame me, what prevented my going in. I walked round the church, hesitating, hovering. I reflected that I had already, with him, hurt myself beyond repair. Therefore, I could patch up nothing, and it was too extreme an effort to squeeze beside him into the pew. He would be so much more sure than ever to pass his arm into mine and make me sit there for an hour in close, silent contact with his commentary on our talk. For the first minute since his arrival, I wanted to get away from him as I paused beneath the high east window and listened to the sounds of worship, I was taken with an impulse that might master me. I felt completely should I give it the least encouragement. I might easily put an end to my predicament by getting away altogether. Here was my chance. There was no one to stop me. I could give the whole thing up, turn my back and retreat. It was only a question of hurrying again for a few preparations to the house which the attendants at church of so many of the servants would practically have left unoccupied. No one, in short, could blame me if I should just drive desperately off. What was it to get away if I got away only till dinner? That would be in a couple of hours, at the end of which I had the acute provision, my little pupils would play at innocent wonder about my non-appearance in their train. What did you do, you naughty, bad thing? Why in the world? To worry us so, and take our thoughts off too, don't you know? Did you desert us at the very door? I couldn't meet such questions, nor, as they asked them, their false little lovely eyes. Yet it was all so exactly what I should have to meet, that, as the prospect grew sharp to me, I at last let myself go. I got, so far as the immediate moment was concerned, away. I came straight out of the churchyard and, thinking hard, retraced my steps through the park. 
It seemed to me that by the time I reached the house, I had made up my mind I would fly. The Sunday stillness, both of the approaches and of the interior, in which I met no one, fairly excited me with a sense of opportunity. Were I to get off quickly this way, I should get off without a scene, without a word. My quickness would have to be remarkable, however, and the question of a conveyance was the great one to settle. Tormented in the hall with difficulties and obstacles, I remember sinking down at the foot of the staircase, suddenly collapsing there on the lowest step, and then, with a revulsion, recalling that it was exactly where, more than a month before, in the darkness of night and just so bowed with evil things, I had seen the spectre of the most horrible of women. At this I was able to straighten myself. I went the rest of the way up. I made in my bewilderment for the schoolroom, where there were objects belonging to me that I should have to take, but I opened the door to find again, in a flash, my eyes unsealed. In the presence of what I saw, I reeled straight back upon my resistance. Seated at my own table in clear noonday light, I saw a person whom, without my previous experience, I should have taken at the first blush for some housemaid who might have stayed at home to look after the place, and who, availing herself of rare relief from observation and of the schoolroom table and my pens, inks and paper, had applied herself to the considerable effort of a letter to her sweetheart. There was an effort in the way that, while her arms rested on the table, her hands, with evident weariness, supported her head. But at the moment I took this in, I had already become aware that, in spite of my entrance, her attitude strangely persisted. Then it was, with the very act of its announcing itself, that her identity flared up in a change of posture. She rose, not as if she had heard me, but with an indescribable grand melancholy of indifference and detachment, and within a dozen feet of me stood there as my vile predecessor. Dishonoured and tragic, she was all before me, but even as I fixed and for memory secured it, the awful image passed away dark as midnight in her black dress, her haggard beauty and her unutterable woe. She had looked at me long enough to appear to say that her right to sit at my table was as good as mine to sit at hers. While these instants lasted, indeed, I had the extraordinary chill of feeling that it was I who was the intruder. It was as a wild protest against it that actually addressing her you terrible, miserable woman, I heard myself break into a sound that by the open door rang through the long passage and the empty house. She looked at me as if she heard me, but I had recovered myself and cleared the air. There was nothing in the room the next minute but the sunshine and a sense that I must stay. End of chapter 15
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.